Welcome to BIB Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from our website at BIB.com. I'm Haley Wooden. I'm Tyler Orton. Haley, I think if we were looking for an issue, a, a surprising issue that would unite the left, the right, and the center, would you ever think it'd be a pipeline? <laughs> Definitely not, not. necessarily, right? Yeah. So it appears that the government, the federal government has actually found this unifying issue by nationalizing Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain Pipeline and uh, buying up the related assets to this. So the, the $4.5 billion sale, it, it's drawn sharp rebukes from business groups, environmental groups, and citizens that are just upset that the government is putting money into this. And joining us later on today, it's Greg Damignon. He is the CEO of the Business Council of British Columbia. He's going to offer his perspective on why this sale exposes some of the flaws in Canada's regulatory systems. And later on in the show, minimum wage is set to rise to a dollar by a dollar thirty on Friday as part of a three-year plan to get to a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. We'll speak to Retail Insider editor in chief Craig Patterson about how this will be felt in the retail sector here in BC. But first, here's Greg Davignol. Well, Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, it's had its fair share of controversy over the years. And I think the federal government did little to cool that this week when it announced that it was nationalizing the pipeline and covering the construction costs for its twinning moving forward. Reaction from the business community, it's been mixed. And joining us today to discuss what this government intervention means for doing business here in Canada, it's Greg Devignon. He is the CEO of the Business Council of British Columbia. Greg, thanks for joining us on the show once again. Perfect. So Greg, with this decision from Ottawa, uh, what message does this send to investors looking at Canada? Well, I think first of all, Tyler, um, Every prime minister since Sir John A. Macdonald's had a couple of responsibilities. One is to uh, grow the prosperity of the country and to hold it together. And the secondary part of that is to get Canadian products to market as an open trading economy. And that's been true before Canada was a country and continues to be today. And so the consequence is that we've got a big country with a big population and infrastructure is vital to that prosperity and getting products to market. And so we commend the Prime Minister for um, vigilantly assuring Canadians that we're going to get Canadian oil to market. We could talk about that later. But the problem is, is that this decision yesterday um, in the national interest really has revealed some fundamental flaws in our ability as a country to come to decisions in a timely way, and once we do, to actually be able to execute on those decisions. In this case, it's a pipeline, but I see it every day in British Columbia and Canada where our inability through the regulatory process and the rule of law to have confidence that our governments, once they say we're going to do something, you can actually do it, is a problem. And the consequence is that in a global economy where capital is movable, Canada increasingly is becoming a risky place to invest, and that's going to impact all of us in the terms of jobs, and the credibility and prosperity of, of uh, what we do as a country and the economy we have. You, you called this a flaw. Is this something that could be fixed as part of the regulatory system, or is it simply sort of a, a product of the fact that people can bring about court challenges or a product of our politics in Canada? Well, I think that's a really good question. Um, the Prime Minister campaigned on the fact that 
public trust had been lost in the process, particularly around the NEB, and that it was broken, to use his words. Well, the reality wasn't it wasn't broken. The reality was it needed some change, but there was a vocal minority that, uh, in many instances, don't want, in this case, oil to come out of the ground. And that includes our biggest competitor in the United States, where they get a discount on Canadian oil, which has been one of the biggest contributors to our economy over the last two decades, uh, by having it landlocked and having no other customer but themselves. So we sell it to them at a discount, and they now are becoming the world's largest exporter of oil and gas in the world. So <clears throat> we need to diversify to other markets. So I don't buy the fact that the process was broken. It, uh, constant improvement is always important. But if you look at the facts objectively, Canada today is 34th out of 35 OECD, OECD countries in the time it takes us to grant permits. We're four times slower than Denmark and 30% slower than France. I don't think it's possible to be slower than France on anything. <laughs> But the consequence that's having, back to your question, and this is the public debate that is not happening, and it's a disservice uh, both in terms of the comments the mayor makes and others, is that the last five years we've seen foreign direct investment. That's the money we need in an open economy to grow our businesses, create jobs, uh, create tax revenue. It's dropped by 55%. And at the same time, Canadian businesses taking their own capital and investing it elsewhere has grown by 40%. What that means is that capital markets are starting to determine that Canada isn't a place to invest anymore. And that's a problem that doesn't show up tomorrow. But in the medium term, we all suffer the consequences with fewer jobs, fewer companies, less taxes, less investment in research and development, and less investment in innovation going forward. So it impacts all of us, not just the natural resource and energy sector. Well, I want to jump on one of the points that you made with regards to this appears as if Canada is a riskier place to invest, and it simply takes too long to go through these regulatory processes. What would be, I guess, step number one, and if you had your druthers, in order to reduce some of this red tape here? Well, the United States is moving to a path where decisions are going to be made in 24 months. Um, so let me give the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline as a case study. Uh, I've been watching it since 2011 when they started early consultations. People forget this is a pipeline that's been there for 60 years. It runs through the province and supplies a third of all of our transportation fuel in the lower mainland. So if you're on a bus or a car or a, a motorcycle, a th one in three cars gets its fuel from that uh, supply. So the consequence is, is it's operated safely now for those 60 years, and the new expansion uh, is going to follow 89% of the route that's been there for that 60-year period of time. But the company went out and spoke to communities for two years before they even filed an application and said, look, we did that 60 years ago. What would be a better way to approach it today? And they talked to indigenous communities, local communities, and that's why you get these variations of 11% outside the existing route. Then they went into a process of 36 months of review, which looked at um, 50,000 uh, documents submitted, uh, 400 interveners providing testimony, 17,000 responses to questions in the most rigorous process we've seen, I think, in Canadian history. And then on top of that, the federal government had another panel review that was uh, involving uh, my friend Kim Baird, who went across the country and, and the pipeline route talked to a variety of people to get their opinions. Then the federal cabinet reviewed the document and made a decision. And the provincial government went through their process and made a decision as well. So it's been uh, reviewed scientifically, technically, and through consultation over what is now approaching nine years. 
The company was approved almost two years ago with 194 conditions to proceed, and they can't with confidence start that construction because of the fact that they've had 16 court challenges with more to come. Um, but at the end of the day, there's civil disobedience and, frankly, obstruction by the provincial government that has pulled the rug out from underneath investors and people that have already had approval and an unwillingness of governments to abide by the rule of law. Yesterday, uh, Rachel Notley, she invoked the term crown immunity with the new investor here, of course, the federal government, and how it's not going to have to necessarily you know, follow all the same provincial regulations moving forward. I, I, I wonder, though, again, is this a very mixed signal to potential investors that you have to have you know, involvement with, say, maybe a federal government if you actually want to get anything done quickly here in this country? Well, and that's where the frustration of the business community, not just in British Columbia and in Canada, is you had a private sector company that had been a great corporate citizen that has entered into agreements with uh, 43 Indigenous communities to enable reconciliation and is going to create not just economic but also social benefits that will really improve the quality of life for people in British Columbia. And they were prepared to invest $7.5 billion to build a product that was actually going to uh, enrich the economy of Canada, but in doing so, improve the safety and security and protection of our marine environment with a $1.5 billion investment by the federal government in the Ocean Protection Plan. And so as a consequence of that, uh, they said, look, we can't wait any longer. It's like you investing money in an RSP and not getting any returns for two years. When do you say enough? I may need to take my money and put it somewhere else to get a return. And that's what they did. They said, look, we, we can't wait around any longer. And so the problem is, is that with the federal government stepping in to buy that asset, it's a damning indictment of our failure and inability to get anything done in this country. So as I've said for ages, Tyler, this isn't about a pipeline anymore. This is about whether or not you can place capital and build large infrastructure projects in the country. And increasingly, through those foreign direct investment numbers and other things that I see around our table, the answer is no. And we've got to fix that. We've got to have a serious adult conversation about the fact that 75% of our merchandise exports and a lot of our prosperity that creates uh, great quality health care and education and infrastructure comes from our ability to extract things sustainably from the earth and provide those products to the global marketplace in a world that is carbon constrained. And we actually have the lowest carbon content products of almost anywhere in the, in, in the globe. Given where we are now with this particular pipeline, do you think it was the, the right decision made by the federal government in terms of buying the Trans Mountain Pipeline? Well, I, I wasn't privy to all of the conversations of what the options are. I mean, the, the finance minister said yesterday that this is a sh- short-term solution until another buyer comes in to uh, purchase the asset. You know, the federal government's not in the oil pipeline building or operation business, so I'll leave that to others informed by the opportunities and conversation. I, you know, the, the Prime Minister's credit said that this pipeline is going to be built, and it is important not just for oil, it's important for our credibility on the global stage to be able to say when we do something and go through a process in a democratic society that once we come to a conversation, uh, conclusion, and make a decision that we're going to do what we say we're going to do. It's our credibility. And so to his credit, they've done that. Uh, I'm not a big fan, frankly, of the federal government buying this asset because I think, as I said, at the end of the day, you had a private sector investor prepared to do this and has done more than anyone else I've seen on large infrastructure projects to try to make sure they do it properly. 
And so it's a damning indictment on our inability to actually come to decisions and get things built as opposed to whether or not this was the best solution going forward. And we need to fix it. And the reality is the world's not waiting around for Canada to fix their problem. They're just picking up their toys and moving elsewhere increasingly. And so all of us, uh, business leaders, government leaders, indigenous leaders need to recognize if we don't have a serious conversation on how we get things done, the world's going to pass us by. And it will be a shame because Canada has so much to offer in terms of uh, contributing to a lower carbon economy. Uh, for example, Northeast oil and gas, that if it had the ability to export globally, has half of the GHG concentration of West Texas crude. Yet who's the biggest and fastest growing crude uh, exporter in the world? West Texas. So why on earth are we letting that happen from a moral or climate perspective, let alone an economic perspective? You know, and Craig, if you ever get a line on uh, who's going to be a buyer for this particular project, please let us know because that's something that we've been debating a lot here in this newsroom about like what would be like a, a midstream company in the market for something like this. But uh, it's going to be a big a bit of a question mark going forward. But uh, let, let's talk a little bit about kind of the economics of this. So we do have this project moving forward. Uh, I, I can guess what your position is, but as far as the Business Council VC is concerned, what, what does this mean for jobs, exports? infrastructure investment, et cetera, moving forward as the government builds this, essentially investing billions into the construction of this twinning. Yeah, so the twinning of the project, I think, does a bunch of different things. So, you know, the price line, uh, the price tag is $7.5 billion to build the expansion of, of the, the product. As I said earlier, uh, depending upon the analysis you have, uh, Canada loses out on as much as $40 million a day on the discount we get on Canadian oil because we only have one customer in the United States. So that's a significant amount of tax revenue going forward. But if I want to take it down to where it really matters, um, there's catering companies that have been planning and investing to be able to service workers in Kamloops, uh, barber shops in Chilliwack that have expanded their service because they're going to have thousands of workers in their community for a number of years. Um, uh, newspapers that are going to benefit as a consequence of the ads that the company need to take out to let people notify where the construction is taking place. So when you bring it down to a granular local community, uh, for example, a friend of mine is the chief of, of one of the 43 First Nations that signed on with Kinder Morgan. It's going to revolutionize not just the ability for young people in those communities, indigenous youth, to get skills that they can employ to raise their families, but it's going to give that community tools to educate people more effectively, to deal with suicides, and to have sole source income where they can determine for their own uh, self-determination what the future of their community holds. All of that kind of stuff gets lost in the shuffle when we talk about whether or not we should have a pipeline. The reality is that we do these projects because they benefit people, and we do it better than anywhere else in the world. And the reality is we've got 48,000 kilometers of pipelines in BC today and nobody ever talks about it. Uh, under Obama, they built seven Keystone XL pipelines in the time that he was opposing the Keystone XL pipeline to Canada. So we just need to become a little bit more, I would say, sophisticated and practical around what we're doing. And in this case, uh, it's counterintuitive, but our ocean and marine environment is going to be better protected as a result of the pipeline and the ocean protection plan than if we did nothing. Oh, Greg, always a pleasure. Very insightful today. I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks so much, Tyler and Haley. It's always a privilege to be on. That's Greg Davignon. He is CEO of the Business Council of British Columbia. And stay with us. Craig Patterson from Retail Insider. He joins us next. 
So, Haley, I can't help but notice that, you know, I, I like to shop locally and I've been going to a lot of stores within my neighborhood here in Vancouver. And a couple of them have posted signs that say as of June 1st, that's this coming Friday, mm-hmm. prices are going to be going up. They have to talk about, uh, say, some of the uh, incremental things with regards to wages that will be occurring Friday. Minimum wage is going up by $1.30. So this is part of an initiative to get it up to $15 an hour over three years. Have you noticed any of these kinds of signs in your neighborhood? I have not. I find it interesting, though, that stores are choosing to communicate that. Is that going to prevent you from going to a store because prices are going up? But, you know, the, the thing is, like, these stores that are in my neighborhood, they're convenient to get to. Um, and for one place that I go to every single week, every Saturday, is this sushi restaurant that I always mm. like. And uh, it has a sign up. I'm like, well, I'll keep going there because what's my alternative? Like discount sushi? <laughs> like that's, you, you never want discount sushi. No. Yeah. No. But um, <laughs> enough of the discount sushi talk. Uh, with us to talk about how this minimum wage hike, it, it's going to be felt in the retail sector as well as other big trends going on in retail. It is Craig Patterson. He's the editor in chief over at retailinsider.com. Craig, great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. So with regards to this minimum wage hike, I, I, you're based in Ontario right now, and I know that you guys saw something similar. We, we definitely had those Tim Hortons stories that were coming out earlier this year about a lot of resistance from, say, uh, a, a particular franchisee and, and how they're putting a lot of the, I guess, incremental costs onto employees. But beyond that, I, I mean, have you seen much of an effect with regards to uh, increase in minimum wage on the retail sector where you are? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I think the you know the, the word is still out right now. Um, it's still fairly new in Ontario. Anecdotally, you know, we are hearing that some retailers are struggling, that they're laying people off, and that prices have gone up. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, I guess the argument can be made that if people are making a little bit more money, then they themselves will be able to, you know, consume in terms of uh, being able to buy things and be able to afford to live. Although $15 an hour in British Columbia or Ontario, for that matter, I don't think is a living wage anyways. No, certainly not in a city like Vancouver. Do you tend to notice whether it's, say, independent retailers versus big chains chains that tend to rise their raise their prices after a, a minimum wage increase? Probably we would think independent only because they would have less uh, uh, capabilities of, of, you know, running any potential losses or, you know, dealing with uh, lower amounts of money for a period of time. If, you know, if Starbucks is able to deal with things being a huge multinational company versus a mom and pop on, you know, a corner store, uh, you know, they're going to be hit harder, I guess, just by default. But uh, large companies, uh, if they can get away without spending lots of money, will do it. I mean, Amazon uh, is looking at, you know, they've halted some uh, activity in Seattle because of a tax, which would uh, help, uh, apparently, I guess, the homeless. So so even big companies don't like uh, having to pay more, but but it's going to hit smaller companies first and harder. Yeah, yeah, Haley brought up a good point just a moment ago. She asked me if I was considering shopping elsewhere, if that would dissuade me from going to some of those regular stores. And Craig, you mentioned Amazon, and I wonder if some of these smaller businesses that they're going to feel increased pressure because of a lot of people they would just go purchase their items on amazon which won't necessarily have to face well it won't have to face those increased minimum wages here in british columbia they can just keep buying their items their you know everyday stuff just online instead and that could be an issue i mean uh, amazon's definitely come out and uh been a competitor to a lot of retailers and, and i think we'll be seeing more you know alibaba if they 
they come in. I mean, and you know, other websites as well. I mean, there's going to be a lot of competition. I think online, uh, not to mention in store right now. It's it's unprecedented and it continues. We often talk to you about sort of the the luxury retail scene in Vancouver and how that's evolving. I'm curious to what extent some of these ultra luxury stores actually pay people at at minimum wage or whether because of the services they're offering, maybe they get paid higher. Do you have any insight into that? Yes. um, Generally, they're getting paid higher, but it really depends. Um, And when I say being paid higher, uh, in some stores, uh, employees are making 100% commission. I mean, ultimately, they'd have to be guaranteed some sort of a minimum pay if they didn't meet that through their commission. Uh, and if that was the case, probably they wouldn't be employed there very long. But, uh, you know, in stores like, say, Holt Renfrew, where, you know, some staff are on 100% commission, uh, some of them are making, you know, in the six figures. And uh, I believe there are a couple people they are making over $500,000 a year. And they are uh, retail sales staff, you would say. They would work in the personal shopping suites upstairs, but where, you know, people will spend millions of dollars. But, um, you know, some retail workers do really, really well. Uh, but, you know, in the luxury field, you know, the base salary can be not much higher than minimum wage. So, uh, you know, it isn't uh, people working in the stores sometimes can't afford to shop in the stores, but in some cases they can. So we're talking about maybe potential losses that retailers would face as we get minimum wage coming up here in British Columbia. But we also have other stories about losses here in B.C. with regards to maybe employee theft. Stories recently about uh, Canadian Tire, a bit of a parking scam that some employees were accused of conducting. We also have uh, an arrest of a liquor distribution branch um, employee who is, who's accused of theft there. And Retail Insider, you guys have been looking into some of the big challenges companies are facing with regards to loss prevention. Is this a particularly hard issue, especially for maybe some of the smaller companies that would not be able to invest big in maybe loss prevention officers? I think so. Just by the sheer fact that smaller retailers aren't going to have the resources, uh, you know, be it money to spend on on certain things. You know, I think a bigger retailer is going to have uh, more capability. You know, it's certainly going to have the bandwidth to uh, implement some sort of technologies or processes or whatever to, you know, reduce shoplifting or shrinkage, which is the term that uh, retailers often use for that. Um, but, you know, I, I'm sure there's things that smaller retailers can do to be vigilant as well. But there, there's sort of a cost benefit where, you know, certain technologies will cost lots of money. And for a smaller retailer, it's not going to make sense for them to invest into that. It probably would cost them more than the actual losses from shoplifting. So they may have to take that into consideration. But unfortunately, you know, shoplifting is a huge problem. And, uh, you know, in Vancouver, you know, you go to some stores downtown and, uh, you know, they lost Shrinkage is a big problem, really. It's, it's unfortunate, especially with the theft from those that may require, you know, money for uh, addictions and whatnot. Sure. Haley, have you ever been followed around at a store before just by these loss prevention officers? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. But I think maybe that, that might be the point. Sometimes, right, they're plain clothes, too, in certain cases. Yeah. I, I do know it's happened to me when I was younger, um, you know, back in my... Uh, goateed uh, shoulder length hair days <laughs> in your youth in my youth you looked like trouble i look like trouble but <laughs> well I, i'm curious what potential impact i mean cost of this technology aside if you're staffing up with loss prevention officers if you're communicating or surveilling staff that's got to impact morale so what what's what are some of the ways retailers can maybe get around that side of things or around suggesting that they don't trust their employees Oh, that's a tough one because, you know, there's a fine line somewhere. I think that open communication and 
Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think that's, you know, open communication, honesty, but, uh, you know, ultimately I speak to, I won't say the retailers, but, you know, speak to employees uh, working in retail stores and some of them, you know, you have to go through Fort Knox when you, when you leave, they check your uh, belongings and whatnot to make sure that you haven't stolen anything. So it's, it's like, you know, going through airport security. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just one of those things that retailers and employees have to be uh, aware of and hopefully accepting uh, and, you know, the communication channel should hopefully be as gentle as possible, I think, in that respect. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it happens. And, uh, you know, I think statistics do show that uh, a lot of retail theft is from employees. <laughs> it's, it's a fact and it's unfortunate. And, um, you know, so, so I, don't even, I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> I think, you know, if the retailer can communicate with its employees and say, you know, this is why we're doing this. Uh, you know, we, we trust you, but we're just doing protocol. I, I think that's probably the best, uh, best suggestion right now. Maybe best case scenario, uh, the minimum wage hike will give people less of an incentive to steal. I don't know, fingers crossed, but I think if you're going to steal, you're, you're going to steal. So I, I don't really know if there's like a great solution there that's going to be viable, especially for some of the smaller independent retailers. But uh, Craig, uh, we also have the CBRE. It released a new report and it's out there showing where re- international retailers are going and Toronto's doing quite well, but I also want to highlight uh, Vancouver. Uh, it's number two on this list here. But tell us a little bit about uh, this Toronto versus Vancouver rivalry when it comes to attracting re- international retailers. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when you really look at it, there isn't so much a rivalry um, because, you know, there are two different cities uh, on different coasts. And one thing about countries is, you know, different cities have different personalities and, and you know, have different roles, I guess, in the local economy. And so, you know, Toronto would be the equivalent of, you know, either, say, New York or, uh, you know, the United States or, you know, Madrid to Spain. And uh, Vancouver would be the, you know, more the San Francisco or, you know, with a mixture of some Los Angeles for the United States or more like Barcelona and Spain. So I think that, you know, what some retailers are doing is they are looking at the Toronto market first and entering Canada through that market. The reason is the city has several really... Uh, exceptional malls uh, both downtown as, in, as well as in the suburbs it's a very diverse market and it's large so it's a good way to kind of get your feet wet in the market but uh, what's interesting about vancouver is quite often retail sales are higher in stores uh, certainly right now and that's across the board so uh, some international retailers are choosing vancouver um, more often than not when they enter vancouver they're more they're usually more high-end retailers uh, that do particularly well right now in vancouver so um, it's you know, it's, it's interesting times, but uh, Vancouver and Toronto are both important markets. It's either going to be one or the other. Sometimes it comes down to, you know, where did the real estate and construction, you know, where did the real estate get acquired first and uh, who managed to build their store first. So uh, it's not even so much a competition uh, in a lot of respects. It's going to be Toronto and Vancouver. But Vancouver's always been a little behind uh, in some respects with certain retailers. I mean, you were the last one to get Abercrombie and Fitch of any major city in Canada, for, you know, I guess other than Montreal, but it used to have one. Uh, but you know that's uh, it's always been the case. I think that a lot of retailers have started in in Ontario or even in Alberta or, or Quebec in some cases and have come into Vancouver eventually, except for high end brands which sometimes open their first stores in Canada in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Let's break down international retailers a bit. From what countries are we seeing a lot of interest here in Vancouver? Um, right now, it's certainly Europe. Um, you know, high end brands that are going to be from. Places like France or Switzerland or the UK, uh, links of London uh, just recently 
kind of reopen their store as an example at the uh, CF Pacific Center. Um, you know, still we're still seeing American retailers uh, coming in. A lot of them have already entered the country, and now some of them are looking at retracting. And then certainly Asian retailers. I mean, you know, Uniqlo, Moody, um, Miniso. These retailers are all expanding uh, quite quickly in the Lower Mainland, and there will be more stores on the way. So uh, it's. I think it is really, you know, Asia and uh, Europe is what we're looking at right now, and. Uh, and uh, there'll be lots more brands coming. It certainly hasn't uh, slowed down, I would say. Yeah, you know, I actually visited uh, Metropolis at Metro Town over the weekend. It's the first time that I've been there, you know, probably at least Christmas, I'd have to say. And uh, I, I was kind of a, like a little bit blown away by just how much, uh, you say, Uniqlo or Miniso, uh, Muji, they, they've been really up filling up a lot of the storefronts there. So you definitely see that influence in uh, a place like, you know, Burnaby of all places. Not It doesn't have to be like downtown core mm-hmm. of Vancouver, which is interesting to me. But uh, Craig, as always, it's great talking to you. Appreciate you uh, chatting with us today. Thank you for having me. That's Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief at RetailInsider.com. And that's it for BIV Today. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tell your friends, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and please don't forget to leave us a review and rating. And you can find more stories in print online at BIV.com.